the fantastic. By fantastic, I don't mean not real. I actually mean the most real truth that you cannot just talk about in words that you need images and mystery to delve into. Why are shepherds in the Christmas story? If we wrote them out of the story, what do we miss? If we keep them, what do we gain? Um, in most nativity um, plays that I've attended when our kids were small and others, they were just props there. They didn't do anything. They just stood there. They dressed as shepherds. They had a staff or something in their hands, and they just looked like shepherds. I'd be interested in some of your answers. Why do you, what is the purpose of the shepherds in the Christmas story? So talk back to me. We're small enough that we can listen to one another this morning. What are some of your answers to the question, the initial question we asked? I'm going to pick on you, Nick, if you don't speak. <laughs> Wow, that's, how many of you knew that? Which begs the question, who were these shepherds? Were they just hired shepherds? There's some Jewish thinkers that think that maybe they were priests who were in fields near Jerusalem, near Bethlehem. Jerusalem and Bethlehem are only five miles away from each other. And usually sheep are not in fields. If you are grazing sheep, they're in the wilderness. They're in no man's land where they can roam free. I was back in my home country in Lebanon in 1999, visiting family there. <clears throat> and I, was, I asked my cousin to drive me up to the convent where I grew up, and she obliged, and we were driving up, and out in the middle of nowhere, just in the wilderness and the tundra of Lebanon, there was this shepherd and his flock with him. He had a staff, and he had kind of put it on his shoulders when, with his hands like hang, resting on, on the staff. And I looked close enough to be able to see, this is 1999 and you can check it out, uh, the phone 2G was already out and you could hold the phone 2G in your hand and, and he had a phone uh, with the, in his right hand and uh, was talking to someone or listening to something. But they were out there in the wilderness, in the tundra. For these sheep to be in the fields, in the field, means exactly, I think, what, what, what you are saying, Nick, that these were guardians of sheep that were destined for the slaughter. 
for the sacrifices in the temple. And usually these were kept two or three months ahead of time in preparation for Passover. So if you do some kind of time calculations, you can, you can actually really believe that Christmas is around this time of year because they were supposed to be in the fields and uh, being raised and prepared and sorted and see which one has blemishes, which one develops blemishes and, and all of those kinds of things that they would be fit for the sacrifices of the temple. So around this time of year is not, a, is not an unusual uh, time to think that this is, this is when this is happening. Right? Let me play word association with you. <clears throat> when I say shepherds, what do you say? Just a word. Shout it out. Sheep. What else? Flock. Staff. With a crook on it. Isolated. Come on, there's more. A lot more. Ah, oh, stinky. Protector. Lowly. There's more. Come on. Guiding. Yeah. Well, so happened that in between the time that the Old Testament kind of ended and uh, the New Testament began, there's a few hundred years of silence, and, but there's a lot of rabbis who, who wrote and uh, they wrote things about shepherds that were not really nice. They they were portrayed as thieves. They would steal sheep from other flocks. Uh, they cheated people. And you can imagine all of that. I mean, it's believable. This is what, what humans do, don't, <laughs> don't we? Um, there's a lot of shepherds in the Bible. And all of them, I think, are VIPs. You would expect this in a society that lives off the land. Uh, can you think of Adam and Eve as shepherds? They must have kept the flock somewhere because God helps himself to one of them and skins it and covers their nakedness. Their son Abel took up the trade. He was killed by his brother Cain. Abraham was a shepherd. Isaac was a shepherd. Jacob was a shepherd. Their 11 sons were shepherds. Joseph is an exception. Joseph didn't want to go there, and he suffered for it. Can you think of other shepherds? David, the the big name in shepherding, David, who wrote the song. Uh, Lot was a shepherd. There's a prophet who was a shepherd that was called out of shepherding into prophetic ministry. 
Did you say Amos? Well, Amos is, is that shepherd. And of course, Jesus is the shepherd par excellence. You get the idea. A lot of shepherding is going on in Israel, and all of these were people of means. None of them are displayed as lowly, poor, stinky people. Maybe they were. The First Testament repeatedly says, without shepherds, the people of God, like sheep, cast off any restraint and scatter and lose their way. Without someone casting a vision of what life with God is supposed to be, from what God has revealed in his written word, without shepherds, there is lost and lostness and broken lives going astray, injury and woundedness. Psalm 23 is a good example of what happens when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death and you don't have a shepherd with you. God is a shepherd. In other words, shepherds are the ones who care for their sheep. And what an honorable vocation despite the fact that the religious leaders cast them in a bad light. Biblical Israel is honored to be called the flock of God's pasture. Jesus honors all his followers by naming himself as their good shepherd. Sheep were of huge importance. The temple needed them to make offerings to God in the temple at Passover. All who made pilgrimage to Jerusalem purchased a sheep. And it had to be without any blemish. So you can imagine why priests would be dispatched to the field, if not to keep the flock, maybe to supervise the whole activity, making sure that sheep are kept unblemished. And sometimes when a, when a sheep was ready to be bought and brought to the temple, these shepherds would take the sheep and wrap it in, in, in swaddling cloths to make sure that it makes the trip from the field to Jerusalem without any further blemish. So interesting. God himself knows shepherding. He has a flock. His day job when he isn't fine-tuning the expanding universe uh, so it doesn't collapse on itself, sustaining all that exists, create life. His, his day job is shepherding you and me. God's heart is a shepherd's heart. He did a lot with shepherds, and it's most comforting thing to have God as shepherd, as David realized after practicing shepherding for a long time. Whatever you can possibly lack in life, the shepherd says, I'll provide for you. I invite you under my care, under my protection, under my comfort, under my peace, in quietness 
and love. Jesus wore the title of Good Shepherd proudly. This contrasts with other shepherds who had no vision of abiding in God, which is the vision of Jesus offered freely and openly to all of us. He was opposed to those who wanted to manage and control the people by shepherding them with a staff and with a rod. He was opposed to those who did that. They turned the tender relationship of lambs and shepherds to one of rules and regulations. Instead of care and compassion, it looked more like millstones tied around the neck. Well, enter the shepherds of Christmas. Becky read part of the passage. Let me read it again, but let me read it in, in portions. I'll begin with verses 9 to 11 and walk all the way through it. And hopefully at the end, as you listen carefully and as you listen to God and you listen to your own life, your own heart, maybe we can have a few of you share what, what, the, what the takeaways, what the applications, what the implications are for you and as a testimony one to another. Hopefully we'll have time in the end to do that. I'm going to try hard to do that. Verses 9, 8 to 11. Now there were shepherds nearby living in the field. They were living there. They were living in the field. Well, there were actually uh, towers that were built in these fields. Um, Micah talks about one of those in, in... 4.8 talks about a watch tower, a tower that was highly elevated where whoever is watching the field would go up in the tower and would make sure that nothing was coming around that it could harm uh, either the city or, or the, the flock. The Migdal Eater is what it's called. And one of them was discovered near, between Jerusalem and Bethlehem, actually. And an angel of the Lord, he's not named, appeared to them. These angels is just, they just appear. Um, and they take on some kind of a form that is recognizable by, by people. Remember, they are spirits. They're spiritual beings. They were, no, they were not created with flesh and blood. But somehow when they appear, they appear as some kind of a human form. And with this angel, I, I'm going to name, name him Gabriel because I think this is just my own thinking. He appears to Mary and he's named there. So I'm thinking Gabriel was given the charge by the Almighty to manage and undertake all the things that are Christmas, um, all the appearances, all the announcements, all the dreams, all the visions that, that happen at Christmas time. I think, I think Gabriel managed 
all of that. That was under his leadership that these things happened. That's, that's an opinion. Uh, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. It's not up in the sky. It is shining around them. Wherever they were, it is shining around them. So wherever they looked, they were seeing shiny presence. The glory of the Lord is the presence of the Lord in such magnificent splendor that you cannot mistake it for anything else. You wonder what that might have felt like? Well, they were absolutely terrified, my translation says. They were terrified. It's a terrifying thing to behold a spiritual being that close. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. Listen carefully. For I proclaim to you good news. I bring you good news. I bring you a gospel. I bring you the gospel. That's the word that is used here. I bring you the gospel. And really, if you want to summarize it, this is one of the best summaries. What is the summary of the gospel? That brings great joy to all the people. Today, your Savior is born in the city of David. He is Christ the Lord. For this angel, this is the gospel. The Savior, Christ the Lord. It's a pretty good summary. Can't get much better than that. Uh, Savior is a word that is only used one time of Jesus in all the synoptic gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's used one more time in John, and that's it. He's called the Savior, the Savior. That makes me think what kind of a species we are. We are a species in need of a Savior. What kind of a world do we live in? We live in a world that needs the Savior. That's what he's named. That's who we are. We are people in need of a Savior all the time. He is Christ the Lord, the Messiah and the Lord. The word Lord is a word for Yahweh in the Old Testament. So he is Christ God. He's the anointed one who is God. This will be a sign for you. And there's a pattern in these angelic appearances. Let me just point them out very quickly. There's the appearance. There's the response to the appearance, and it's usually one of fear. There's a word of assurance that is given. Then there's the divine message that, that, that is delivered. And then there's a sign that is given. Usually the person that the angels appear to asks for a sign. Give me a sign. This is, 
this is what happened to Mary. Give me a sign that this is, this is the right thing. Um, the angels don't request a sign. Sometimes there's an objection. These angels are not raising any objection. How can this be, Mary says. Not these angels. Not these shepherds. He is born in the city of David. Um, that's their clue where he is born. The city of David. Is that Jerusalem or is that Bethlehem? He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in strips of cloth and lying in a manger. This is a sign. This is a sign. In other words, when you go looking in Bethlehem, when you look, you will find, you'll find this baby, brand new baby. This is the day the baby is born. He's not even a day old yet. But there's something different about this baby. Not only is he a day old, but he's also lying in a manger. He's got, he, he has a special blanket, a baby blanket around him, swaddling cloths, and he's in a manger, a manger. They, they would recognize a manger. Shepherds recognize mangers. Just like your student kind of put two and two together, Debbie, right? Uh, a manger is a trough, a trough made out of stone, hewn, uh, hewn uh, out of a stone, uh, where you put food for sheep and water. So these shepherds are very familiar with that. You put the two together, swaddling cloths, baby, one day old, in a manger, and you get the sign. The first to hear the news were the angel, were the shepherds. The first to hear the news of the baby being born were the shepherds. When God turned himself into a human being, that's a fancy word for the incarnation, the first people he wanted to tell were shepherds. Why is that? Well, they were not the governors, the rulers of the people, the elite, those who had dominions, but shepherds. It would be harder for those who live in high places to get a Messiah born, to get an anointed king born in a manger, a lowly place. A manger is a sheep feeding and watering trough. I wonder what tone Gabriel took in his announcement. Have you ever given, like, feelings and the tone of the voice and the approach? What was that like for Gabriel? I don't expect you to know. I don't know. But we think of them as totally um, inhuman. They have no feelings. They're just messengers sent to deliver a message and then retreat back to heaven. 
But I wonder if when God talked to Gabriel about his mission, like how excited was Gabriel to do this? Did he do it with... He's, Gabriel means the mighty one of God. Did he do it with oh, another task I can do for God? I'll, I'll go back to heaven pretty soon. Or did he put his whole heart and soul into it? Gabriel is called an archangel along with Michael, who is the archangel. And those two fought um, in Daniel 7. They had a fight in, in the heavens and, and won over the one uh, that was going to kill the Son of Man. I think Gabriel was right up there in the um, hierarchy of angels. The glory of the Lord shone all about them. Now, at some point here, I think Luke is channeling um, Isaiah 52, verse 17, where it says, How beautiful... On the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. He says, your Savior is born. We already talked about 12. <clears throat> 13 and 14, let me reread and make a few comments. Suddenly, a vast heavenly army appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among people with whom he is pleased. People and goodwill to men, other translations would say. The message ends in a dazzling a display of soldier-like angels. They're called the host. They are hosts, and hosts are soldiers. They're meant to protect and to uh, keep from harm. Except these soldiers were not the fighting kind. They were the peacekeeping kind. They were singing praises to God. What was, that, what was that music like? The whole bunch of angels singing. Of course, we don't know. I'm just asking you to uh, activate your imagination. What would that sound have been like? Because the shepherds heard something that was terrifying to them, that at the same time that was so dazzling and brilliant and magnificent that affected them. I would say for life. I have a record in my old-fashioned record, record collection 
You know what a record is. Some of you may have never seen one. Uh, it's a disc about this big, and it's usually black, and it has grooves in it, and you put a needle in this This one is called The Red Army Sings Christmas. The Red Army was the Russian army singing about Christmas. And the sounds are just amazing. You would love it, Emily. It's just wonderful, wonderful music. Um, this choir, this heavenly choir, tops all of that. An army of God responsible for peace. They're, usually the hosts, the soldiers are, are ready to fight. These soldiers are ready to announce peace. You wonder if Jesus became aware of their presence all the time with him. You wonder how much they protected him at different times in his life when, when danger came knocking in. And they announced the news, goodwill, goodwill to men. Goodwill. That's, that's what love is. Love is goodwill. Willing what is good to men, to all people. And willing what is good, loving God and others, always comes from here, see, and glorify and praise God. Worship is the path to peace. In fact, I would say worship is the only path to peace. In all human affairs, in church fights, worship is the path to peace. War ceases when the glory of God possesses the minds of men. Broken lives and broken relationships are only restored when true worship of God becomes the lifestyle of estranged people. Verses 15 to 18, it says, when the angels left them, went back to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem, to see this thing, and this word, this thing, really, it's, it's, let's go see this word. What the angels announce and proclaim to them is a word, and they're saying, let's go see this word, which is an interesting way of talking, <laughs> the, the way the Greeks talk. A thing is a word, come true. A thing is a word come true. It, is, it becomes reality when you say it. That has taken place. It's an event that the Lord has made known to us. So they hurried off. Why hurry? Um, they hurried out of obedience and located Mary and Joseph they had to find them and found the baby lying in a manger. You notice I haven't said stable yet? Because <laughs> personally, I don't think it, there was a stable. 
in an inn somewhere. If there, if, if, if there were a stable, the stable would have been part of a home, probably Joseph's home, where Joseph went during the census to register Mary and himself so they can pay taxes. And he would have lived there with relatives in a relative's home. And it was so common in, 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 in the archaeological work that has been done that there's almost always a little stable as part of the home. And it was there that the trough and the, and the sheep were brought in for the night. They served more than one purpose. Their wool and, and their meat would be uh, eventually consumed, but they also provided heat during the winter for the people that are inside the house. So that's, that's the manger. When they saw him, they related what they had been told about this child to Mary, to Joseph, and to all who were there, probably all the people in, in the family of Joseph. And all who heard it were astonished at what the shepherds said. So they hurry. A good translation of that, they said to one another, come on, let's go. What are we waiting for? Come on, let's go. Haven't you heard this great news? What was that moment like when the music fades, when the dazzling sights recede, and a sense of, like, oughtness takes over them. We, ought to, we have to go. Let's go. Let's go do this, what the angels told us to do. What do you call a moment like this one? Mary experienced that moment, and her response was to ponder these things deep in, their, in her heart. Like, deep in the recesses of her being, Mary took this news that was announced to her, and pondered it, thought about it. These shepherds didn't do a whole lot of that. They just went for it. They both full of wonder, Mary and these shepherds. In fact, any time in the Christmas story you see angels and, and things are happening, there's a sense of wonder. Wonder is all over Christmas. There's more mystery here to fill an eternity with discovery. Notice they don't take an offering with them. Notice they don't go to Jerusalem. They go to Bethlehem. They rush to present their own bodies as a living sacrifice, acceptable to God, which was their reasonable act of worship. The music faded, but a new way of being with God comes to the forefront in their minds. They sing glory to God. Peace only comes on the heel of worship. I said that already. All other peace won't last. May, if I may be permitted this comment, when the Jews turn back to God and give glory to him, peace will come to Israel. When the Palestinian Muslims are possessed by the glory of God, 
Only then will real peace come. Does that mean we should do nothing? No. But it means peace comes from the heart, and the heart is changed, peace is possible. And the heart only changes when God becomes the object of worship. That's the way God has designed our world. There's a song which I really love. It says this, When the music fades and all is stripped away and I simply come longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. I'll bring you more than a song for a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within through the way things appear. You're looking into my heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. And it's all about you. All about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. When it's all about you. All about you, Jesus. King of endless worth, no one could express how much you deserve. Though I'm weak and poor, all I have is yours, every single breath. That's what the shepherds teach me. That's what they teach me. To worship the Lord. Jesus. So I ask you in closing, what is touching your heart from this encounter this morning? What is touching your heart from this passage? Maybe something you only thought about for the first time. What is touching your heart? A praise, a wonder, a new realization, perhaps a new direction in life. What is touching your heart? This is your opportunity to give a testimony. It's only 10.15. We have time.